In the book of Hebrews, going through, we're going to begin looking at, well, we're going to take a good look at, the fourth warning or danger that the writer brings out this morning. By way of quick review, the first danger, if you remember, was in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The danger of drifting. And um, interesting, he says, give heed to the things that we've heard. The second danger, remember we looked at it, uh, the danger of a hard heart, the sin of unbelief. We saw that in chapter 3. In verse 7, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. And the writer takes us back all the way back to uh, Kadesh Barnea, where Israel got up to the edge of the promised land and balked and said, no, we're not going to go in. We don't believe that God is going to be with us, essentially. And and they you know, actually tried to stone Moses and all that. And uh, they paid a huge price for that. But he says, if you hear again. He, he uses this hearing thing. The third danger we saw in chapter four, the danger of falling short. For, and it says in, in chapter four, verse two, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard didn't profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so the danger of falling short. Uh, this last danger is different in a way because uh, it's the danger of apostasy. It's the danger of walking away and uh, and going back to, in context of these Hebrew Christians, going back to Judaism, but there's a broader application for the church, the danger of just walking away from Jesus. And we're going to look at this. What essentially what apostasy is, is it means to wander off. It, we're going to look at that in the text. The, the He talks about somebody falling away. Literally, it means to wander off or to stray or to abandon the faith is essentially what's being said. Uh, it's somebody that says, I don't care. I don't want to hear. I don't want to know. I gave my life to Jesus, but I want it back. Might not say that overtly, but that's the attitude of the heart. And so this is, classically, this is a very difficult passage. It's one of the most difficult passages to teach in the New Testament. Uh, there are so many positions on this. I mean, because, it, I mean, these controversial words, you want to talk about the aspect of spiritual maturity and spiritual, um, maturity and coupled with, can you lose your salvation or do you keep it? This is a, this is a hinge pin for that whole controversy. And it's been waged for centuries and centuries. I, I, I'm going to do my best to unpack this. What I have found most of all, I've read a lot of commentaries on this over the years. I've taught this book a number of times, but I'll see a number again, preparing this morning. And I find that, that people approach this passage with their own bias. What I mean is, is that if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you're going to approach this passage from the standpoint of, well, you can lose your salvation. Let me prove it here. Da, da, da. If you believe that you're secure eternally, you're going to look at this. There are people that say this is, oh, it's a hypothetical thing. Well, maybe not so much. I mean, it's possible, but he's talking to real Christians here. And we'll talk about that. And so there's this, here's a couple of things I read. The number and variety of explanations is wild. It's bewildering. Uh, this is known to be one of the most difficult chapters in all of scripture. 
it has suffered in interpretation more at the hand of its friends than at the hand of its enemies. Uh, godly men find themselves at opposite ends of the spectrum on this. So I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm not going to approach it from the standpoint of my biases because I have them. And, and I believe them, and I believe there's scriptural proof for them, and we'll talk about that. But I just want to look at the text. I want to look at it, unpack it, and see what it says to us. Uh, something I want to note going in is many people over the centuries have been gripped with fear when they read this. Because they make the supposition and, and the uh, assumption that this is dealing with sin. It's not dealing with sins We all struggle with sin, don't we? This is dealing with the sin of apostasy. This is dealing with the sin that when Jesus was accused by the Pharisees and and they said, oh, he's casting out devils by the power of Satan. And he said, that will not be forgiven you. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's the kind of thing, because that was, you could only say that if you were apostate. You could only say that if you were not part of his deal. And so, I want you to understand, there's great encouragement as to being secure in the master's hands. We'll look at a couple of passages this morning about that. But uh, this is not about struggling with sin. It's about apostasy. The writer also, I want you to understand too, the writer to the Hebrews is a pastor as well as a theologian. And as such, he approaches things Theologically, we've looked at some, and, and we're going to look at a lot more, especially as we get into the, the ministry of this high priest Melchizedek and look at that in chapter 7. But uh, he gets into some really intricate arguments about uh, theology, but he's also a pastor. He also has a shepherd's heart. And his genuine concern for these people was there. And as he writes this, his concern is for people to walk with God and to not walk away. Uh, the other side uh, of all of this, there's joy inside of Christ, but there's also a curse for those outside of Christ. And so we're going to look at that. This is going to be a strong warning. That's why it says on the slide, uh, there, he draws a line in the sand and, and he says, look, this is it. And he, he draws a very clear line. And we're going to look at both sides of that line. The, the way that the passage breaks down, it breaks down into three parts. Uh, it actually begins in chapter 5, verse 11. We're not going to go back there. We were there last week. Uh, and he gives a stern rebuke. He says, you know, you have become dull of hearing. You have been, become sluggish in your hearing. It's not something that they did because they were disabled somehow. It was something they did because they did that it really wasn't all that important. And they were sluggish. They were dull. They were... They were not hearing things well. They were immature. They were not allowing the the word of God to speak to address the issues in their lives, and, and allowing that to have place in their in their hearts. That was the sluggishness he was talking about. So there was a stern rebuke in chapter five, verse eleven through six three, which is what we looked at last week. Now in verses four through eight, there is a very tough warning that he gives. Uh, it does. It's a warning along with an illustration. At, and then in verses 9 through 12, he actually, it, it's, it's almost like, have you ever been in a car where the guy turns really fast? It's like your face is plastered up against the window. It's like, I wasn't expecting that. 
it's it's kind of like that as you look at how this unpacks, how the wording is here, because you're just cruising along. And he's man, he is putting the hammer down. And you're going, wow, this is serious stuff. And all of a sudden, he just jerks the card, and your face is against the window, and he's saying, "Let me tell you, I just I am I just love you guys so much." And and if you're not, if I mean, as you unpack it, you see why, uh, and and the context determines the understanding here very very much. So. Uh, it, he begins with some very difficult words, and, and you got to re- realize and remember, he does it from a pastoral perspective. He's a pastor, he's a shepherd, and he has a genuine care for the people he's writing to. Uh, we're going to read through it, and then we'll come back and unpack it a bit. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, or maturity is what that means, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. So we looked last week at the six things that he lays out here. They're foundational things, the things that, one would assume they should have known. Uh, he's essentially saying, don't stop here. I want you to continue to go forward. Don't stop at this immature deal where you're still grappling with foundational things. I talked about my son when he was a toddler getting electrocuted by sticking a chain into the wall outlet. And, and that's fine. Then I mentioned that he, I never worried about him with electricity after that. At 40 years old, I wouldn't expect him to put a chain into a wall outlet. He's not in that place. He's grown up. He learned that lesson. That's part of the foundation. And then he built on it from there as he matured. That's that's the, the same thing that the writer is trying to bring across here. They're, they're important things. Don't underestimate the foundation, but it is a foundation. And you don't have to go back and revisit the foundation because as you grow, you're building on top of it. The elementary, the, the ABCs of the Christian faith. And that's what he's talking about there. And, and he's the whole point he's making is he's going to get into this. He's going to launch in chapter 7 and do an in-depth teaching on Melchizedek, which had never been done in all of God's word. Uh, as I mentioned before, this guy just kind of mysteriously shows up and then disappears. And, and then a thousand years later, mysteriously, mysteriously shows up and disappears again. And then 700 years after that, he mysteriously shows up and then he disappears. It's like, who is this guy? And, and the writer is going to go into a very in-depth, fascinating exposition on Melchizedek. And yet you have to not be operating in the basics in order to move into that to get a grasp on it. He's encouraging these people, go into this with a mature approach. So uh, verse 4, first though, he's going to go into this warning that he talks about. And um, in verse 4, he says, For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Wow. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful to those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned." 
So he gives this strong warning in 5 and 6, and then in 7 and 8, he gives an illustration about what he means in that. And we'll look at that as we get to it. Now, he repeats a very similar illustration in chapter 10, but he actually uses stronger terms. This is pretty strong. He's actually stronger in chapter 10, and we'll look at that when we get there. But uh, the question is, is here, is, is he saying that if someone comes to Christ and then turns away, that there's no way they can turn back to Jesus? The answer is, yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. But you gotta understand this in light of the greater context of Hebrews and the immediate context of verses 9 through 12, verse 9. But, there's that word. Do you know what the word but, I mean, we've talked about that in, he, in Ephesians 2, he says, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you once walked in according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit now working the sons of disobedience, and then he says, but God. He says, you were dead, but God. The word but tends to cancel what was just said. Does that mean it invalidates? No, it doesn't invalidate what he said, but he's, he's putting forth a principle here, but, beloved, we're convinced and confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work of labor, of love, which you've shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's not canceling what he's just said because he, he follows that but with, you know, we hope for better things concerning you than what I've just said. So you're not off the hook on that. However, I do want you to understand that we've looked at if when he uses personal pronouns as he writes, he says we, he says in the beginning of this chapter, let us, uh, and then he says you, and then he says them. I want you to pay attention to that as we go through the text because that really helps us to, to understand what, what's going on. Two things that are vital to understand. As I mentioned, this is not about a believer falling into sin. We all go through that. It, it, the sin of apostasy is completely different. It is something that is, it's like the big guns. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's saying, I've had it. And there was a real risk for these Hebrew Christians who had been walking with the Lord for now some 30 years, some of them, of saying, I've had it. I'm done. I am so discouraged. I am so worn out. I am so tired of being ostracized. I'm so blown away by people turning their back on me. I am so tired of struggling to even put food on the table because nobody will even hire me. I mean, these guys were under some really heavy, heavy oppression. And you got to keep that in mind as you look at this. So uh, when he talks about somebody being, uh, let me see here, I lost my place. Okay. When he talks about people that are in this category of, of people that are being warned, I want you to understand, by the way, that all of the warnings in Hebrews are about apostasy. It was a huge risk for these people at that time. Uh, I look around us today, folks, and I see apostasy. I see people that are walking away from the church, not from churches, but from the church. I see people that are being lured away by all of the glitz, all of the stuff. 
We, you know, when I was taking kids into Mexico, we would warn our team, our teenagers, guys, don't feel sorry for these people. They have a whole lot less to compete for their affections. They, they, yeah, they're poor, but this is their life. And we actually have it harder in many ways because there are so many things that, 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 you know, like the magpie looking for something shiny. There's so many shiny things to pick up and to take on. And, and we would exhort these kids, don't feel sorry for them. They're actually in better shape than you because, and I would tease the kids and say, yeah, a trial for you is TV in your bedroom doesn't get very good reception, but, you know, a trial for these people is a whole lot more significant in that regard. So understand the warnings here are directed towards apostasy, and there is direct application. Uh, the second thing is, why have so many commentaries and books been written on this? Because as I mentioned, people teach this, they look at this from their own personal bias, uh, rather than simply or not so simply pay attention to the text. So we're going to go back, we're going to unpack this and do that to the best of uh, our ability and to see what the Lord wants to bring out of this. So verse 4, he says, For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say it's difficult. I looked at the Greek word for impossible, and you know what it means? Impossible. He says it is not possible for those who were once enlightened. What does he mean by enlightened? It's a reference to somebody that that has come to an understanding that, that the Holy Spirit himself has enlightened them. He, they've come to a knowledge of God's truth. The person and the work of Christ is what's being referenced here because when in the context of this where he's talking about enlightenment, he's not talking about enlightenment with sports. He's not talking about enlightenment with politics. He's not talking about anything other than enlightened by God. And, and so... Again, he's talking about people that are walking in the light, or at least have had the appearance of walking in the light. They've been enlightened. and They've tasted the heavenly fruit, uh, the heavenly... He says, if they've tasted the heavenly gift, uh, what is the heavenly gift? Salvation. Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Ephesians 2, verse 8... Um, as I mentioned, he, he talks about, by grace you've been saved through faith and not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. And so when he's talking about this heavenly gift, it's a reference, direct reference to salvation. It's a direct reference to regeneration, to being born again. When he talks about the word partakers here, he says you're sharers. Your, your version might say sharers of the Holy Spirit. It's essentially he's saying that the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Do you see how, I don't believe this is written to unbelievers. He's talking about people that are there, that are covered in the blood, that have been part of uh, the family of God. In verse 5 he says, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. When he says you've tasted, that means you've taken it in. Uh, the powers uh, of the age to come, the miraculous, the miracle-working powers of God. These people, many of them had seen the, the huge miraculous scene that was going on while Jesus walked on the earth. And they understood God's miracle-working powers. Verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, that they crucify. 
for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So, again, catch the word they there is twice in this verse. If they fall away, to renew them, again, to repent, since they crucified themselves uh, for themselves the Son of God. Uh, so to when he uses the, the term fall away, it's only used here. This is the only place this word is used. And it means to abandon, to turn aside, or to wander off. So he's saying if these people, if somebody chooses to wander off, they choose to abandon, to shipwreck the faith, to say, you know what? I've had it. I'm done. People don't get up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'll be apostate today. That's kind of silly. But people do, through the attitude of their heart and through the choices they make, choose to walk away. I believe that there's a great possibility that that's the person he's talking about here. People that walk away. Am I secure in my salvation? Am I secure in the Lord? Am I eternally secure? Yeah, I am. Uh, I love to tell people, don't ask me about your eternal security. But as for me, I am secure eternally. Uh, my life is securely in his hand. And Jesus said, nobody will snatch it out of his hand. And that's good enough for me. We'll talk about that in a minute. So he says, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. One of the things I would add here is he doesn't say it's impossible for them to be forgiven. But, and I want to, I'm going to be careful. I'm going to go with two main interpretations in this. And I'm going to walk the line, split that because I don't know which one it is. I'm just being straight up with you guys. This is, like I said, if theologians have grappled this with this for centuries, who am I to say I've got it all figured out? Uh, but I'm going to go with the preponderance of the textual evidence and, and look at this and the contextual evidence, and let's draw some conclusions. So uh, when he talks about them crucifying the Son of God all over again, he's saying Christ. Is, there, it's, it's the attitude of the heart that says Christ isn't good enough. Uh, but pay attention to that because... The Jews, the people he's writing to, are in a place where they had understood the sacrificial system. And if they went back to Judaism, he's saying, this isn't going to fit. You can't mix this. You go back to Judaism, you can't crucify him again. If you went in Judaism where there was animal sacrifices and you had a covering for sin, you could keep sacrificing that animal, but you can't mix the covenants. You can't mix grace with law. And so, again, and that's a very important distinction to make in this because it fits the context, the greater context of what's being said. So one of the things I've seen as I've looked in different commentaries and looked at what different people have said is that there seems to be a point of contention. Was this addressed to believers or unbelievers? Let me give you four reason, reasons, I believe, that this was written to believers. The first is in context, this was written to Jews who trusted Christ as Savior. The whole book is written to that group. And, and, and so to all of a sudden say, we're going to break out of that and we're talking to unbelievers now, just doesn't make any sense. The second is this, unbelievers are never exhorted to go on to maturity. And that's the immediate context. He, remember, he said, let's move on to maturity here. And that's not something he would write all of a sudden and, again, break out of the context of writing to believers and say, let me talk about unbelievers. And I, you know, there are a lot of people out there who say this must have been written to unbelievers because, after all, you know, there's no way that you – and it's like, you know what? You can be dogmatic about it, 
but you have to really explain away big parts of the text to take that position. The third is he says is when he talks about having tasted uh, in uh, verse five, he says having tasted the the good word of God. Uh, it's the same word that the writer uses in chapter two, verse nine where he proclaims that Jesus tasted death for everyone. So in that, Jesus didn't sample death. He entered into the full experience of death. I mean, he tasted death. And what the writer's saying here is these Hebrew believers had entered into the full experience of salvation. They belonged to Christ. The last is, how can an unsaved person disgrace Jesus and put him to open shame? If you're a heathen, you've already done that. It's, it's, you know, when Jesus was with the woman caught in adultery, he knew that that was not the sin that would commit her soul to hell. Her sin would be rejecting him. And so if it was an unbeliever, you can't accuse the unbeliever of putting him to open shame that they can't be renewed to repentance if they don't believe in him to begin with. So, This passage, I firmly believe, is talking to believers. All right, that presents the problem. What is he talking about? Can you lose your salvation? I don't think so, but let's move through this some more and uh, see what more sense we can make out of this. It could appear, again, that it's about a struggle with sin. If it is, it refutes other passages of Scripture. Now, Scripture has to agree with Scripture. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, he doesn't have things that just pop out. Uh, and in, in Jesus, especially when he says something, he's not confused. In, in John chapter six, verse 39, uh, he, Jesus says this. He says, this is the will of the father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but that, it, but should raise it up on the last day. So Jesus is asserting that you and I are secure in the Father's hand, in his hand. He's not going to lose us. He says in in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, uh, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You can't ignore passages of like, like that. Uh, you know, and I think that the enemy has had a field day with this passage in Hebrews 6 for, for a long time. And trying to get people to where they think, well, you know, if I've sinned greatly, that I'm no longer part of God's family, that I know I've lost my salvation. If, if you are ever in a place where you wonder that or you worry about that, be of good cheer because that's actually evidence that this doesn't apply to you. You haven't turned your back on God. He hasn't given you over. He, you know, I, I worry about people that have walked away from the Lord because I worry at some point they might wake up some morning and just feel better because the Holy Spirit is no longer striving with them. He's no longer ha- have his hand. And it's essentially, and it talks about that in Thessalonians. He says, you know, he'll give them over to a deluding influence. So they'll believe what's false. You want it, you got it. That's terrifying, but that's not us. If you are in a place where you are seeking the Lord, even if you sin, this is not about, it's about apostasy. It's about people walking away. About Christians walking away. 
I don't understand all the nuts and bolts of it, folks. I really don't. I do believe that when Jesus says, nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand, that I can take courage. There's a principle in hermeneutics. The science of Bible study is called hermeneutics. Let's just call it a principle of Bible study. Um, and, And it's this. You always interpret the difficulty using the clearest passage first. Work the unclear passage around the clear passage. You don't try to figure out the clear passage with the unclear. This Hebrew 6 can be unclear. It can look, you know, there's some open ends there that are part of why there's so many books written about it. But you take the clear passage to interpret that. Jesus makes clear statements. It can't be interpreted if Jesus, if it makes Jesus appear to be mistaken about the thing. He wasn't mistaken. If he says he does not lose his children, he doesn't lose his children. Period. So we use that to help us interpret this. Does that make sense? And that's the way to go about it. You don't do that in reverse. You're going to end up out in the weeds. The point is in context, they were considering abandoning abandoning Christianity to go back to Judaism and in the process, disgracing Christ. In that state they could not be brought back to repentance while disgracing Jesus Christ in such a fashion if they had fallen away and gone back to Judaism. In other words, you can look at this. This is one of the interpretations in context of him addressing these Hebrew Christians and saying, look, if you want to go live over there in the Jewish camp, and you want to look at the sacrificial system and, and you know, the priesthood and all those things we're talking about, you go ahead. It is impossible to for you to repent in that state. You can't do it. It doesn't work. It's oil and water. You want to go out and live in the world and live it up and let your life just kind of rot in some ways, go ahead. You can't in any meaningful way call yourself a Christian in that state. Come back. Repent. Get right with Christ and move forward with him. Ask him to forgive you. You know, that's, I think, one of the main things that fits the context beautifully when we look at it that way. He's not talking about eternal security. He's talking about people that have walked away. He's saying that with what you walked into, sacrifices aren't going to get it. Repetitive sacrifice. It's impossible. It's not going to work. And and he'll talk about mixing the covenants more as we get further into this book because there's a real strong admonition not to, to try to take pieces of the old covenant and make them fit in the new covenant. Covenant means contract or agreement, and God makes it. We don't. We just participate in it. And so that's something that fits pretty well. Now, there is a place where Christians can become so carnally minded that can act from such an immature position that can become so hardened that they drift away. The writer's cautioning against that. And that applies to us, church. We can become ineffective in our walk with the Lord to the point where now there's a question mark hanging over my life. There's an overarching principle in all of this. I always look for the overarching principle. Yeah, yeah. the, the principle on one side, can you lose your salvation or, or is it secure? I believe it's secure. There are those that will assert that it's not. 
And you know what? I can argue both sides of that from the word. I believe absolutely that I am secure. And I believe you are too if you love the Lord, if you have let the weight of your life down on him, as we've talked about in in studies past. The overarching principle is why would you ever allow your relationship with God? Why would you ever allow your walk with God to get to such a point where that's a question? You don't have to worry about these kind of things if if that's never a question. You don't have to worry about walking away if you don't walk away. Your life is secure in the master's hands. Keep it there. That's, I think, the point that the writer's wanting to bring out. Verse 70, he says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it bears herbs useful for, to those whom it is cultivated and receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So what he's talking about is the earth drinks in the rain, and there are two results. One is it bears useful herbs, fruit. Two is it bears thorns and briars. The person he's talking about appears to be a Christian. Whatever they're doing permanently separates them from God. There's no fruit. James says, show me your faith, I'll show you my works. It doesn't mean that works save us, but they follow. Because you'll always act on what you believe. And if there's no fruit, the question becomes, do you really know him? I think that what he's saying here, he's talking about people, not that they cannot repent, but that they will not repent. It's an act of the will. Deep spiritual water is what he's talking about here. But he doesn't leave it there. This is the part where he slams on the brake and turns the car hard and faces plastered against the window because he switches from this whole, I mean, this is intensely heavy stuff. And he switches from that to the encouragement that he brings. In verse 9 he says, but beloved, I'm going, beloved, man, I feel beat up. No, you're my beloved. I, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He's not let him off the hook. He's saying, yeah, I'm talking about this stuff and you need to pay attention. But beloved, I, you know what? I don't think that that's where you're at. I, I'm confident of better things for you. He says in verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name in that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. <sighs> four interpretations here. The four main interpretations I see here, and as we wrap up, we'll just go through them quickly. Uh, first is this is a real Christian who has the Holy Spirit and truly loses his salvation. Then... Uh, There's a false Christian. Looks, talks, behaves outwardly like a Christian. This is vain faith. They've never let the weight of their life down on Jesus. Uh, This is the oldest position, too. It's the one that's probably talked about the most. Uh, They've never asked him to enter their soul. They've never asked him to take ownership of their life. Not in a meaningful way. Paul talks about this person in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if 
you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. He puts a question mark on that person. The third position, and this is in context addressing, addressing Hebrew Christians who are considering returning to Judaism, the ones that I talked about, the ones that he's saying, you, you're not going to find relief from your sin through repetitive sacrifices. It's impossible for you to repent if you're in Judaism. You can't do it. It doesn't work. You can only find repentance in Christ. And that fits. It fits the context well. There's a fourth position, and I'll talk about this as we wrap up, and and that's that this could be a real warning to true Christians that effectively keeps them from apostasy. In verse 9 he says, But, beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. So what do you mean it's an effective warning? I'll share a story with you. I... um, in years past, I haven't done it for a few years, but uh, loved to scuba dive. And I went one time, I took a week on a big 65-foot sailboat and was scuba diving like four times a day, and, and it was just an, an awesome time. And uh, the, the, the trip culminated in a shark dive. And that was where, silly me, um, I got on my wetsuit and, and uh, tanks and got all geared up dove into the water with about 20 8 to 10 foot long hungry sharks during a feeding frenzy. Well, actually, we started the feeding frenzy after we got into the water because it's very dangerous if you're trying to swim and sharks are biting anything that they think is food. But before I went on the shark dive, they gave us, we had a meeting. We all went into the galley of this ship that I was on this boat. And the guy got up there and he said, all right, now look. This is dangerous, and you've got a, a release to sign in front of you, and the re- release said, I, it said, I understand I'm putting myself in grave mortal danger. And I promise not to sue the shark if he bites me. It was a little joke they put in it. <laughs> but then it went on to say that, you know, I, by signing this, I am holding the company, you know, harmless and, you know, the whole legal liability thing. And, and that's fine. I mean, I was stupid enough to sign up for this thing. But it was, and I, all I had dove with was reef sharks in Hawaii up until that point I'd never dove with Caribbean reef sharks which are like twice the size and I was surprised when I realized wow I signed up for a lot bigger fish than I thought but anyway so the guy says all right now don't come too far off the bottom when you're down there he said first find a rock he said you'll see a kind of a semicircle of big rocks back up to a rock because a lot of times sharks attack postures from behind. They're stealthy. I'm thinking, okay, that's encouraging. So he says, all right, find a rock. And he says, don't come too far up off the bottom because sometimes they're attack postures from underneath. And okay, I'm learning a lot here. And, And then he says, okay, but don't, he said, don't be too still. You don't want them to think you're a dead fish and attack you. And I'm going, this is getting kind of narrow. And then he says, but don't move around too much, especially don't stir up sand on the bottom because they don't want, you don't want them to think that you're an injured fish and attack you. And I'm thinking, all I'm going to do is go down there and breathe. And, and so I, I went on the shark dive and it was wonderful and I, it was very, very exciting. I think it took four days for the adrenaline to wear off. But, uh, and, and it was, it was very exciting. It was, it was a real deal. My point is nobody died on that trip. I asked the guy, I got a great answer too. I said, 
excuse me, I raised my hand while we're still in the galley. I said, has anybody ever, like, you know, cashed it in? Has anybody ever, like, been really hurt? Because I'm kind of thinking, this, you know, why did I do this? And and, he's, and he said, nobody that has ever followed our instructions has ever been injured. <laughs> and I thought, that's interesting. I don't think I want to ask any more questions. <laughs> My point is, he gave us an effective warning. No one got killed. No one got hurt. Did the potential exist? Yes, it was real. It was absolutely real. I can attest to that. But he gave us an effective warning. It was an effective warning that said, you know, it's like if you're on a plane full of guys and, and you know, you're going to go skydiving and the door's open. There's a sign over the door that says, don't jump out of the plane until your time. Nobody's going to jump out of the plane. Nobody's going to die. So it's a warning. If you do that, you could die. But it's an effective warning in that, on Jesus' plane, he's not lost one. That doesn't mean that there isn't an edge to the yard. You see, so it could be that this is an effective warning. It could be that he's saying, look, I'm warning you, don't push God on this. And the point is, does God want me to wrestle with things like this? Yeah, I think he does. He could have made it crystal clear. But, you know, there are times where some are saved by just an encouraging word. There are times where some are saved by fire. There are times where if we're in a place where we've allowed our hearts to wander, a passage like this should be very adequate to reel us in. So again, the overarching principle, I I don't ever want my life to be in a place where this is a question. Um, The point that the the writer's making in this, and, and we'll wrap up, uh, he says, don't even think of giving up your faith. Don't even think about it. Uh, Hebrew Christians and to us, don't even think about, you know, I love what Peter said. He said, where else would we go? When we were in John chapter six and Jesus had fed the 5,000 the day before, uh, and, uh, probably out on the flanks of Mount Arbel, uh, and had come across the seas in Capernaum and he's at the synagogue and the people actually chase him. They come around the shore and they meet and, and he says, you seek me because I fed you because you saw a sign. But I think he would have been really excited if they said he has the power to forgive our sins, but they said, no, he can feed us. He's warning these people, look, it's it's not about provision. It's about profession. It's not about what you're getting out of it because they weren't getting a lot out of it uh, physically and emotionally, and, and it was very difficult. But what he was doing was letting them know, look, you don't have to worry. You are here. Uh, this life is a vapor. It's there for a minute. What Peter said uh, Jesus, when those people, he, Jesus got up in the synagogue there, uh, and he said, you know, if you want anything to do with me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Now, to a Jewish mind, that's rough. That's rough. And it says that most of the people left. He actually thinned the ranks on purpose. And he turns to his men and he says, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And Peter's words, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. 
And so the writer here is saying, you know what? Don't think about walking away from Jesus. Be secure in his arms. Understand that there's an edge to the yard. And you know, you don't have to have it figured out to have a healthy view of this passage. I don't have it figured out. I freely admit, I'm going with what I see in the text. I think that when he talks about he tasted death and that he, we have tasted the word of God, he's talking about salvation. When he talks about these different things, he's talking to Christians. Is it a, is it a, a person that was never saved to begin with that can walk away? Perhaps. But I do know that his people, his truly his people, he says, I've not lost one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We can be confident. We can be secure in that. Should we ever be in a position where uh, there's a question mark over our lives, passages like this come to bear in a significant way and should create a healthy fear of the Lord so that we can move forward with him in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. And Lord, um, this is just such a short look at, at, at this, but I pray, Father, it, it's adequate and that we would be able to, to glean from this passage.